Hour with Evan Wallace on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Good afternoon. Welcome to the start of the traditional working week. It's great to have your company. My name's Evan Wallace coming out of Launceston and wherever you are in Tassie or maybe tuning in on the Listen app from much further afield, I hope the year is tracking along well. Have you been driving about over summer? I'm wondering if you've seen an increase in roadkill. Anything we can do to say this is really important and let's be aware of it, let's slow down, let's look out for wildlife and let's not try to hit Tasmanian devils or any other wildlife on the road. Coming up in a moment, we'll head to the state's northwest and find out whether a suite of local initiatives in Circular Head Council are helping or hindering Tassie Devil roadkill prevention efforts. And in Longford, Goatfest was held yesterday. And today, we're going to learn all about mohair. I've been a shearer most of my life and um, I won't be 80 till next year, but I shear our goats. The, ni- the first time I shore them, of course, uh, was like trying to shear a cloud. It was completely different from what I was used to. Devils, goats and maybe even a special border collie in the mix. It's Animal Central on the Tasmanian Country Hour. did invite Tasports onto the radio. We've also put in calls to the Maritime Union. Mornings with Leon Compton. Michael Bailey, the CEO of the Tasmanian Chamber of Commerce and Industry. I think what's important, though, that the union remembers is you know, don't use Tasmania as a bargaining chip. They must make sure they keep these freight loans open. I feel really worried again about you know people, for example, that are waiting for windows to come in. They've probably been waiting for six months and... If the vessel keeps going, I'll be back on that waiting list again. Leon Compton. Weekday mornings from 8.30 on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. On air, on the ABC Listen app, online and on digital radio. This is the Country Hour with Evan Wallace from ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. It is wonderful having your company. Seven minutes past 12 on this Monday, the 29th of January. Roadkill is an all-too-familiar site in Tasmania. And in Tasmania's northwest, it's not just wallabies and feral cats getting hit, it's also the endangered Tasmanian devil. We're about to take a trip to Circular Head Council where one carer has noticed an increase in the number of devils ending up as roadkill despite the best efforts of locals. And I'm curious if this is something that you've noticed too. Have you seen more roadkill on the roads? over summer and maybe over the last year in particular. And as we zoom in on this story that Bet Pridham's pulled together, I'm wondering if you've seen more Tassie Devil Roadkill. You can tell me on 0438 922 936. Is it something you've noticed? And if you have, where have you seen it? Looking at the stats, we know that since the mid-90s, the Devil's Wild population has decreased from around 150,000 to a population no greater than 25,000, with Devil facial tumour disease and cars causing significant havoc. So let's venture northwest, where locals have tried virtual fencing, lower speed limits, and education campaigns to support Devil's, en- well, to stop, I should say, Devil's ending up on the side of the road. Are they working? Well, Beck Pridham hit the road to find out. Yes, I know. You're very fierce, darling. Alice Carson has two orphan Tasmanian devils playing in her lap. Okay, so 
Mr. Cranky over here, he came in first. Um, he was found walking up the middle of Wool North Road in the middle of the day by some passers-by. He was very dehydrated and quite malnourished. And then this other little boy here, who has more white on him, he came in a week and a half later from about 50 metres up the road. What do you think happened to their mother? Definitely killed. The road she's talking about is a notorious Devil Roadkill hotspot in Tasmania's far northwest. The lifeless body of a lactating female was spotted further up the 25-metre stretch. Alice has been documenting devil deaths on Walnorth and West Montague Road since January 2021. Her tally has now passed 240. It breaks my heart because I don't care if they're a devil or a patty. I just... It's awful. And you have to get out and you have to move them because if you don't, you'll come back and there'll be a, a dead hawk on the roads or a devil that's come in at night and it got cleaned up because it was eating roadkill. In a bid to bring down devil deaths, the Circular Head Council last year reduced the speed limit from 100 kilometres per hour to 80. But Alice has counted more carnage in the six months since. Between July and December 2023, she documented 23 deaths. Over the same period in 2022, when the speed limit was still 100, it was 19 deaths and 20 in 2021. Alice takes me to the road. In the overgrown grass beside it lies a dead devil. It's stiff and flies are feasting away at it. That's what we were cuddling at home a few months down the track. It's just a waste. She points to the smeared bitumen. Oh, this is obviously where he was hit. You can yeah. see the blood here on the road. Yeah. Yeah. Alice reckons drivers are simply ignoring the speed limit. But Circular Head Mayor Jared Blizzard says random speed counters suggest otherwise. Oh! The evidence we've got is that the, the majority of people, and there's always going to be a cowboy that doesn't do it anywhere, anytime, but the majority of people are obeying the speed limit. He says it's too early to see if it's working, and the council will take stock a year on from the new speed coming into effect. It's like a lot of things you can... You put something in place, you've got to give it a chance to work to see if you've got to change it, tweak it, or go in a different direction. Devil populations across the state are far from what they once were. It's impossible to get an exact figure, and populations are dynamic. But since an infectious cancer appeared in 1996, devil facial tumour disease, scientists estimate the population has declined by two-thirds. While recent research has shown the disease and the devils are evolving to coexist, University of Tasmania Professor in Ecology Mena Jones says the endangered species need protection from other sources of mortality. After the devil disease, roadkill is the most significant source of mortality for devils. It won't send them extinct by itself, but it is important that we address it to help buffer those populations. A stakeholder group is exploring other ways to bring down roadkill in the area, including removing carcasses, slashing roadside vegetation to make animals more visible, and bringing in rumble strips and signage. 
That's as well as driver awareness, which Professor Jones says is critical. It's campaigns to educate tourists coming into the state, but particularly campaigns to educate and raise awareness among locals who are driving these roads every day. They become very familiar with the road. They become very inured to any warning signs um, about wildlife on the road. So anything we can do to say this is really important and let's be aware of it, let's slow down, let's look out for wildlife and let's not try to hit Tasmanian devils or any other wildlife on the road. A message Alice is behind. I'd never want anyone to have an accident to try, by trying to avoid an animal, but there are things you can do. Just be mindful because we need them and they need to be in our environment to make it work. They're really important little people. Oh. Oh, that's a, a little Joey there in the lap of wildlife carer Alice Carson finishing that report from Beck Pridham. And if you'd like to see more, read more about that piece, head online, abc.net.au, and you can see the ins and outs as to how those observation studies are tracking along. And like Alice, if you've seen an increase in roadkill, then be really interested in hearing from you on 0438 922 936. Hey, Tip Pratt, thank you very much for your text. A different perspective on this. You've said, hi, Evan, remove roadkill late each day, that should reduce fatalities. I think that maybe you're talking about uh, fatalities on the roads when it comes to, to drivers, but Tiprat, thank you very much for that text there. But you can message me on 0438 922 936. It's 14 minutes past 12. Evenings with Helen Shield. Lima Jansone. She is a virtuoso on this Latvian instrument. The kuakla is a plucked string instrument. It's also the instrument of the soul. At what point did you decide you needed to take it on a multi-day bushwalk? I think it was Anita's idea. It will be so beautiful there. And I said yes because I didn't know what does it mean, this bushwalk. <laughs> Helen Shield. Coast to coast. Monday to Thursday from 7 on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Evan Wallace with you right up until one and I'm in Launceston this afternoon where the weather really doesn't know what it is doing right now. It was rainy one moment but looking outside, clouded, a little bit of sunshine, it is rather undecided. Uh, in Lonnie itself it's sitting on 19, Devonport you're also sitting on 19, Bernie it is 21, Hobart 26, St Helens 22 that's something resembling a summer. We'll be heading to the Bureau at 12.30 and a few stories looking at how we are responding to and measuring dew points ahead that is all ahead on this afternoon's country hour but i'm going to take a turn and a dive into the world of freeze drying and i'm wondering have you ever had a go at dehydrating your food it can be a pretty handy technique when you're planning to head on a hike or do some lightweight camping so 
freeze drying. What exactly is it? It's when you go sub-zero to remove the moisture. In Tasmania, Forager Foods has grown to become Australia's largest manufacturer of freeze-dried products and now employs around 50 staff. It's long specialised in fruit and veggies, but it's now planning on entering the US market and diversifying into exporting meat products. Based in Launceston, I caught up with Chief Business Development Officer and co-founder Jonty Barnett to find out what's on the company's radar at the start of the year and the ins and outs of freeze-drying. What we do is we basically work with a lot of suppliers on, on value-adding produce that um, would normally could have been wasted, especially on a lot of our fruit and vegetable ranges that we do. You know, we take fruit that could be second or third grade that could have been um, buried or fed to stock and return a value to the supplier or the grower of that product. Absolutely brilliant. Looking online, it's a very, very colourful company. It's a company that uh, markets itself on, say, the use of uh, um, dried beetroot and strawberries and uh, all sorts of fruit and vegetables that you're able to use and then work with uh, different companies. Incredible process that actually goes with that. Explain it to me. Freeze-drying is subluxation, so it's basically you take a product down to about minus 20 degrees, minus 25 degrees, put it into a vacuum chamber, and under pressure and at that temperature, water actually boils out of the product. You put a little bit of heat into the plate, and it takes the water from liquid to air, and then in that air, then it gets attached to a coil. So then what it basically does is it just removes all the moisture out of the product. We packed it into an airtight bag. And what the freeze-drying process end up gives, it retains all the goodness and nutrition for the product. So basically by freeze-drying something, you'll retain 90 to 95% of the antioxidants, the vitamins, all the goodness that's in the fruit or the vegetable, whereas uh, air-drying air or um, like fr- um, dried apricots and so forth, they have to use sulphates and sulphides in that process. When did Forager come into being? Uh, Forage has been going since 2009, um, so John got involved in, in, um, in the freeze-drying business then, um, and so Forager was born. We started doing a bit of work for Bellamy's Organics, so we were doing the freeze-drying for them, which we still do today, um, and then we've, got a, we've basically grown from there. So a small on-farm premise out at Red Hills, where we've grown and put four freeze-dryers in, we got to the point where, yep, we needed to take the next tranche. So that was moving here to Western Junction where we've put in two new freeze dryers, which basically will give us about an eight-fold increase on what we could produce a couple of years ago. So we're in the process of uh, quite significant growth and capa- uh, cap- capability and capacity. Does the expansion help you diversify or really change up the mix? Yeah, look, it does. It does give us a chance to diversify. I mean, we do a lot. We are exporting to probably about eight different countries now, um, and that is on bulk supply as well as our own branded product. Um, So it has really opened up the scope for those sorts of things, but also having accessibility into not just fruit and vegetables. We're doing doing meat products. We're doing products for um, cheese, dairy products, so we're exporting that into a Japanese market as well. Um, We're also doing... um, uh, um, meat products into the US as well as another export at the moment. So lots of different, it, it, by having the different sites and the growth, we've been able to then cherry pick and where we can put and dry different products, yeah. So huge growth ahead this year. Just wondering if there's a way that you could somehow easily quantify that in terms of numbers. So you talked about the eightfold growth that moving to this facility will provide. But say, for instance, in terms of volumes or potential turnover, where are we now and where are you hoping to head? 
Oh, look, we, we see probably this next year. I mean, since last year, the start of last year, our workforce has doubled. Um, we've got we're about 55 staff now. Um, our sales are uh, in the same boat. You know, we're up at doubled our sales last year, and we consider this year will be at least a 50 to 60 percent increase on on last financial year. So, you know, we're we're looking at um, betting down that growth. But we've also got to be careful that we manage that growth because of that eightfold increase that we can do. We can't just turn that on and get it going. You know, it's a, it's going to be a stretch and a, a stepped and staged approach to make that um, to get that to fruition so yeah we sort of see forager probably within the next three to four years being probably five times the size it is now and um, yeah we're very excited about the growth you know because it's just nice to be able to look at products that yeah Tasmania's got the food bowl you know if we can actually help value add some of that in a different way and be seen as market leaders in that area in the country that's what excites both of us best of luck with the year ahead Jonty. yeah thanks very much Forager Food co-founder Jonty Barnett talking about the latest in freeze-drying. We were at the company's headquarters just next to Launceston Airport. On ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania, this is the Country Hour with Evan Wallace. Hey, Caroline, thank you very much for your message. You've said the only way to prevent our devils being slaughtered on the road at Montague Road is to have someone designated to remove all the other roadkill pre-dawn and before dark. The devils eat old roadkill. Caroline, thank you for that reflection and uh, for that I suppose, uh, strategy that you'd like to see adopted. And I think maybe that's what you were getting at there, Tip Rat, in terms of removing roadkill late each day. I'm asking you whether you have seen an increase in devil roadkill on the roads. And you can share that uh, with me on 0438 922 Caroline, Tip Rat, your observations and your thoughts on uh, Tasmanian devil roadkill management. Very, very interested to hear you your perspectives and your insights. Well, ABC Rural revealed last week that the Bureau of Meteorology now has an agricultural decision support team within its wider ag program. With recent unusual and unsettled weather, the team has been keeping an eye on how dew points could affect food and fibre production. Senior meteorologist Jonathan Howe told reporter Fiona Broom why a high dew point can affect harvesting and sowing as well as livestock welfare. Essentially, it it is a measure of how much moisture is in the atmosphere. It's essentially the temperature to which we need to cool the air to produce condensation. And so the higher the dew point, it means that we need to cool the air less in order to get that moisture out of the air. And very much in simplest terms for us getting it out about this summer, it is a measure of how uncomfortable or muggy it is. Certainly this time of year, the summertime, there's a lot more moisture around the atmosphere that can produce a lot more showers and thunderstorms. And we do, of course, also have high dew points. And we have seen that particularly over the last few weeks, especially if you're in Victoria with the dew point well up into the high teens and low 20s. So that's something that you typically find uh, further north in the country, places like Queensland. Normally in Melbourne, the dew point in summer sits around the single digits, so around kind of 5 to 10 degrees, or those really hot days with northerly winds, sometimes a dew point can even fall to zero. But when we get dew points above 15 degrees, that starts to get uh, a little bit more uncommon around Victoria. And then once we get the dew point above 20 degrees, which is what we did see over the last few weeks, that's very much tropical air pouring down across the state. How is the dew point different to humidity? So dew point and humidity both are measures of moisture in the air, 
But that's where the similarities sort of end. So whereas dew point is an actual measure of the moisture in the air, humidity is a relative number and it talks about how close the air is to that saturation level. So you can have a very high relative humidity, but then a very low dew point. And that's when the dew point and the actual temperature on the thermometer are very close together. So the dew point provides a better measure of how much moisture is in the atmosphere, whereas the humidity is, tends to describe what's happening at that time, relative, um, relatively speaking. So it doesn't always provide the full context. That's why as meteorologists, we tend to use the dew point a little bit more than humidity because the dew point directly goes into what we call the apparent or feels like temperature. When the dew point's higher, it feels a lot hotter than it actually is, but the humidity doesn't really tell us that. Definitely, we advise um, people out there to use humidity with a bit of caution. Dew point is a much better indication of how much moisture is in the atmosphere. Okay, so that feels like temperature or that feels like information that we can get that's more closely connected with dew point than humidity. That's exactly right. So, for example, in Melbourne last week, the thermometer temperature was giving exact temperature of about 25 degrees and the dew point was sitting at 21. But because the dew point was so high, the feels like temperature is probably closer to the high 20s or low 30s. So that really gives an indication of you know, how difficult it is for our body to lose that excess moisture. The higher the dew point, the harder our body needs to work. What impact does that have uh, in agricultural terms? Does livestock feel the same effects of the dew point as, as we humans do? And what about crops? How do they react to higher dew points? Absolutely. So dew point does have quite a large impact on uh, the agriculture industry. So looking at something like livestock and animals, the higher the dew point, similar to humans, animals do experience heat stress, particularly cattle, uh, you also use sheep as well, and also chickens and poultry. So we get those really hot and muggy days. It does mean that um, particularly overnight, animals' bodies, also humans' bodies, can actually struggle to cope with some of that high heat and it can also lead to heat related illnesses just like it does in humans so certainly um you know when you, when you do have those really high dew points over a number of days particularly overnight period it can definitely impact livestock in terms of crops though the impacts do vary from crop to crop type but what we do know is that um we the crops do need a certain level of humidity in order to provide enough moisture for for transpiration and allow kind of normal growing processes to occur but when we do see very high humidity that can of course increase the risk of things like fungus growth particularly uh, for stripe rust amongst grains but also when we do see very high humidity that can also lower the ability for crops to intake nutrients and also can lead to decline in um, quality of crops so for example the bureau does issue downy mildew advice when we do uh, expect to see high dew points and high humidities decrease in the quality of crops so definitely dew point does play a part of in agriculture we did have some really high dew points over the past few weeks. What was driving that and is that going to continue? Yes. So those dew points we did see in Victoria last week were quite high and really more typical for northern New South Wales and tropical Queensland. So in Victoria, while we, we do see these high dew points, um, they're very much due to high pressure systems sitting out over the Tasman Sea. If we get what we call a blocking high pressure system, that's when a high pressure system sits between Australia and New Zealand over a number of days or even up to a week in this case and that what that does is funnel some very tropical humid air from the coral sea right down over victoria thankfully this week though we're not seeing those really high dew points but as we head into the rest of summer we are seeing some very high sea surface temperatures off the bass strait and also over the tasman sea so anytime we do see those 
north to northeasterly winds across Victoria, that's when we start to see the humidity pick up. And over the next few weeks and months, certainly expecting to see more humid incursions of air across the state, which can produce storms. So uh, with more than a month to go of summer, and of course, as Victorians know, the heat can also linger well into autumn. So we are looking at some further humid outbreaks over the next, um, for the rest of summer and into autumn. That is Bureau of Meteorology Agriculture Decision Support Team member, Jonathan Howe, speaking there with Fiona Broom. Evan Wallace is my name. I hope that your afternoon is going along well. Your news and your weather next. If you love country music, you'll love ABC Country. You get a fast car. It's Australia's home of country music. The music you grew up with. You'll be the captain. All the latest country hits. I ain't proud of all the punches that I've And emerging artists. Twenty-four hours commercial free. ABC Country. It's on your DAB Plus digital radio and the ABC Listen app. Also appreciating your messages coming through on Devil Roadkill. I'll get to those in a moment, but we do need to find out how the weather is looking across the state. Let's say a very good afternoon to Mark Analak. How are you doing? Good afternoon, Evan. Very well, thank you. Here in Launceston, I was saying earlier, it is all over the place. There's been some clouds, there's been uh, sprinkles of rain. Now there's something resembling sunshine. How's the weather looking across? It's starting to break up, isn't it? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, slowly, slowly. How's it looking across the state? Look, uh, just in the last sort of 24 hours, we've had a broad westerly airstream deliver quite a bit of cloud and shower activity to the west. And uh, in the 24 hours to 9am, rainfall totals have been sort of of the order of you know, three to ten millimetres across the western parts of the state. Mount Reed was the highest at 17 millimetres. But since nine o'clock, um, the clouds are starting to break up, um, not so much out in the west, still got that westerly airstream delivering sort of some shower activity, and Mount Reed's had a further four millimetres since nine o'clock this morning. Elsewhere, totals have been less than a couple of millimetres. For central and eastern parts, the cloud that we saw this morning is starting to break up. It took a little bit longer to to break up from Launceston. Um, Temperature out there is 21 degrees, but now that the cloud's cleared up, I I expect the temperature to start rising fairly quickly. Um, Elsewhere in the state, we've got mostly clear skies now, uh, so mostly sunny conditions across central and eastern parts, apart from the northeast. And uh, temperatures have been as high as 27 degrees in a few places, Um, Fingal, um, Campania, Hobart have all been to around 27 degrees already. Um, so the temperatures are on the rise, clouds breaking up, uh, and that's pretty much how we should see it for the rest of this afternoon, Evan. And looking to the remainder of the week, at least the next few days, aside from some showers about the west, it's looking like it's quite nice, quite pleasant conditions for Tasmania. For most, for the next few days, you're quite right. Yeah, we, we maintain this westerly airstream with a ridge of high pressure sort of trying to influence our weather a bit more. Um, So just some sort of westerly flow bringing some cloud and some light shower activity to the west but central and eastern parts should be mostly cloud free for the next couple of days. Having said that um, there is a cold front on its way uh, probably moving up Thursday so with that we'll see an increase in westerly winds that start to become fresh to strong and gusty uh, westerly winds um, that'll bring some showers a little bit further eastwards as well so showers over the west probably increasing to sort of widespread showers 
um, but isolated showers also extending to sort of southern parts and maybe even pushing into the eastern districts as well for a period um, during Thursday, Friday with the passage of that cold front. Uh, uh, but the real, real news there is that uh, we can expect some pretty windy conditions through Thursday night into Friday um, with, with that change coming through and an increase in shower activity towards the latter end of this week. It's important to look out for those warnings as we progress through the week. I know there is a warning in place for today. We do have a strong wind warning current uh, for eastern and southern coastal waters between St Helens Point and Low Rocky Point and probably see that uh, strong wind warning continue for southern coastal waters tomorrow um, sort of between Tasman Island and Low Rocky Point. But uh, a little bit more detail on the coastal waters there. We do have sort of a west-northwesterly flow of 15 to 25 knots um, reaching 30, 30 knots about those eastern and southern waters. Over, during the course of this afternoon and overnight, we are expecting those winds to become a bit more south-southwesterly, uh, an ease of fraction, but still reaching um, 20 to 30 knots over those southern waters. For swell, uh, we've got a, a west to southwesterly swell at Cape Sorrel, uh, currently sitting at around about uh, 2.7 metres with a maximum wave height of 3.7. Uh, that swell is expected to sort of hover around 2.5 to 3.5 metres out in the west uh, for the rest of today. For the northern waters, westerly swell of one metre and for eastern waters we've got a southerly swell below one metre um, turning southwesterly at one to two metres offshore in the south. So uh, that's pretty much all from me. Thanks Evan. Oh, Mark, thank you very much for bringing us up to speed and just quickly, are you a fan of goats, Mark Analak? They are cute. Um, <laughs> Do I have a property for one? No. <laughs> if you did, could Would you, I could like you, could, one? No. You couldn't imagine yourself with one as a pet? No, I don't think so. No. Oh, there no. we go. Hey, Mark, I'll leave I'm you a, to more it. I'm a cat person. Oh, quite a contrast there. Hey, have a good day. <laughs> Thanks so much. That is Mark Analak there from the Bureau. Evan Wallace is my name. It is 23 minutes to one. And are you a Mustard Dogs fan? I've been loving season two. And in the next half hour, you're going to meet one of the show's loveliest dogs and her owner, Russ. It's been quite different because originally I, I train my dogs off my, my other dogs. But that doesn't work under this technique. So, yeah, it's, this is a more refined way of training a dog. And while I'm being a silly little kid, I'd also like to share with you one of my chats from Goat Fest, which was held in Longford over the weekend. It needs to be about five inches long, and that, that um, fibre goes to Italy to make posh suits that the average uh, person probably can't afford, but... Um it's good for the industry. Are you lucky enough to own anything made out of mohair? Well, you'll hear all about the magical white, fluffy Angora goats shortly. But first, last week we learnt the nation's consumer watchdog, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, had been directed to undertake a 12-month review of supermarket pricing practices, including the relationship between Farmgate and consumer prices. In Queensland, a Talamba Zucchini farmer says supermarket price gouging is worse than it's ever been. Ross Marcelino grows tomatoes, eggplant and zucchini but has stopped supplying the major retailers. He says unsustainable margins are just one reason behind his decision. Uh, very tough. You know, tough in, uh, in all aspects, uh, in growing 
and marketing the product, basically marketing the product because uh, you know, we're getting 240 a kilo at the moment, which is $24 a carton, uh, which is you know, 40 cents a kilo above what it costs us to grow, which is a lot better than three weeks ago when we were getting a dollar eighty, two dollars a kilo, as high as two twenty a kilo. So it has been tough, a tough season, yeah. What was behind that change in price? Was did the supermarket did they increase no, their prices? No, no, they haven't changed. They're uh, yeah, they're paying two forty a kilo, but they're retailing at nearly seven dollars a kilo. So nothing's changed. Uh, they're still uh, they're still still retailing too high. You know, we should be selling a lot more product um, at that two forty a kilo. The orders are very slow. The simple reason is um, they're retailing too high. So that's not helping us zucchini farmers, no, not at all. And so, Russ, you've said that you're you're prepared to walk away from the supermarket. So where are you with that? Well, I am. I'm, only, I'm supplying into the market system, into the markets, and they're signing on to the supermarkets, yes. Yeah, so I'm not, I'm not supplying. I'm definitely not supplying them direct, no. And how long have you not been supplying them? Yeah, just this year, yeah. So the price difference is, is one factor. Were there other reasons behind your decision not to supply directly? Um, yeah, a lot, lot of reasons. This, is, this has been built up for the last two or three years. Um, they've become a lot, lot tougher to deal with. I suppose since COVID two or three years ago, um, they've just become a little bit more hungry. This year especially, even... Even last year wasn't as bad as what it is this year. I don't know what I don't know what's happened. As a farmer, what what are your other options? Is it really only going to farmers markets directly? No, I don't think so. Other options are that if the government had some sort of pull, um, let the fruiters, let the butcher shop owners, let the, the the bakeries, let them sell the fresh produce. Maybe the supermarkets should be brought back in into order. Um, and just sell groceries. So I suppose we'd, we'd probably still sell more amount of the stock and probably on a fair fair price. I've, I've had a fruit shop for 30 years and I've been a, a market wholesaler for 16 years and a farmer all the way through. This is not how it should be. So, look, I've, I've spoken up because this year of all many years, it's become very, very tough. Our expenses haven't got lighter. Our freight bills are higher, our chemicals are higher. So we're at, we're at the limit now, yeah, with, with the costs. But yet we're, we're getting the same amount for our product that we were 10 years ago. That was Talamba vegetable grower Ross Marcelina speaking with Faith Tabalujan. Now, looking at another grower based in Queensland, there is a Queensland pineapple grower who has turned his back on supermarkets and he made that decision decades ago. John Zelenka grows pineapples at Alligator Creek in Kamala, just outside of Mackay. And he's pretty, well, pretty unhappy with the situation. We used to supply Coles and Woolworths locally and then they changed their system to where their produce must go through a central marketing point. And how was the prices for you back then? Um, they were okay then, but um, when we started supplying essential marketing, they basically were giving you a contract and setting a price that probably didn't reflect the premium quality of your fruit. And when did you stop supplying to Woolies and Coles? Uh, it would be about 20, 23 years ago. I supplied all the 
uh, local shops and uh, wholesalers around here and also I send to Brisbane to the markets and I supply the IGA. And how is it just supplying to markets and the IGA? Do you find that you get better pricing and um, you're better placed for your business than rather than at Woolies and Coles? Certainly are. And not only that, um, the people get a much better product because the fruit is fresh and it hasn't travelled for thousands of kilometres. And do you know a lot of other people in your industry or around here that are doing the same thing or have done the same thing? There are other growers. There are large growers who have contracts with Woolworths and Coles, but um, we choose not to do that. Coles and Woolworths, especially Woolworths, they love to advertise that they're the fresh fruit people. Well, their fruit has gone thousands of kilometres more than people who are supplying like IGA because they insist on it being sent to a central marketing point and then they send it back up on another truck back to where it probably came from to put in their supermarket. So, you know, they like to push this, um, their green and clean and green. Well, the green miles on their produce is far greater than it is on um, people like the IGAs. As you said, you, you got out of couple of decades ago. Do you feel like you ended your contracts at the right time? Yeah, I definitely. I I just find that they love to take, <coughs> Woolworths love to pick the optimum size. They have a lot of specifics about what they want and then they intend to try to pin you down to a price that probably doesn't reflect that price you get in the market. They definitely control the market. You know, we really do need to support private stores and the IGAs because they support local growers. Kamala pineapple grower John Zelenka speaking to Abby Holter. In response, a Woolworth spokesperson said they pay farmers the market price for their produce, which can vary throughout the year due to weather, seasonality, supply and demand. You're listening to The Country Hour with Evan Wallace from ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Great to have your company right across the state or wherever you are listening on the ABC Listen app. A number of you have chimed in on my question of whether you have seen an uptick in devil roadkill in the state. Follows a story where one carer has observed an uptick in the number of devils killed by the side of the road despite local initiatives in the state's northwest. Murray from the Midlands, you've said that the increase in roadkill is due to only one reason and that is a increase in numbers look at a road on a map and then look at the expanse of land either side between roads you've said move on more important issues and george thank you for your message you've said so a limited port strike uh, leaves the tourism council to release a warning that uh, the strike could harm tasmania yet there's never a word on roadkill harming tourism how cynical how political of the Tourism Council. Thank you for that, George, and thank you, Murray, for your message. And it's not too late to join in on the conversation. You can text me on 0438 922 936. And Joy, yes, 
Jess, I think you uh, capture your uh, your name in your affection for goats. You've said, goats are just tops. I lived in New Zealand for 15 years. I saved a goat that was being mistreated, flew her home, Qantas, to our South Australian farm when we returned to Australia. What an experience that was. Well, Joy, I'm wondering whether you were in Longford on the weekend. This is a uh, it was a hoot at the Longford Goat Fest. Lots and lots of fun from goat soap to goat cheese, goat meat, and of course, mohair. I'll bring you a few more of my conversations from Goat Fest tomorrow, but it's time that we catch up with Don. Hi, I'm Don Ackland from Henrietta Mohair. My wife, Gay, and I uh, came to Tasmania the second time and uh, we ran an uh, Angora stud at uh, Henrietta. And Angora is very synonymous with mohair. Tell me about mohair. If you're someone who doesn't know at all what mohair is, how would you describe it? Well, um, Angora goats come from Angora in, in Turkey and the, f- the fibre is mohair because it's hair. It's, um, we shear them twice a year. Uh, the most valuable um, Shearings is the first um, three or four years. After that, we um, we make them. The does that we pick out are the best in the st- for the stud, and um, and their fibres not worth as much because of their age. Um, but they um, uh, cut um, uh, produce does and weathers that cut good fleece. Beautiful. Here at the Longford Goat Fest able to have a little bit of a feel of the beautiful mohair it's very very soft is this is this quite unusual is it very unique just to the angora goats oh yes it's it's that's what angoras produce um the first three shearings especially in first three years or so uh the fibers worth you know sixty dollars Plus, and after that, it gradually goes down. But then the the does, as I mentioned earlier, um, can produce uh, the next generation of kids. So that's because kids just have that softer coat. Uh, yeah, that's correct. And it needs to be a certain length. It needs to be about five inches long, and that that um, fibre goes to Italy to make posh suits that the average. Uh, person uh, probably can't afford but um, it's good for the industry. Tell me about the goats themselves, what's their temperament like? Oh well like any any animal or any human being for that matter they all, there's a variety of, uh, of um, things. I, I for instance some people say oh goats I don't want to have them, we can't keep them in and I always say well if you've got goat fences you never have any trouble if your goats get through the fences it's because you don't have goat fences How many goats do you have on your property in Henrietta? Uh, we have a bit over 100 um, it's 14.4 something acres plus we have about 8 acres of a neighbour she asked us to run goats there and um, yeah and they've improved the uh, soil. We don't fertilise we spend some money on barley, um, feed them about 300 grams a day uh, for the ones that are breeding and, and growing. The ones that are growing, they might only get uh, a couple of hundred grams uh, three times a week just to keep them um, friendly. <laughs> and 
and just that process that goes from extracting the fleece to then getting your mohair, is it more involved? Well, I've been a shearer most of my life and um, I won't be 80 till next year, but I shear our goats. The, the first time I shore them, of course, uh, was like trying to shear a cloud. It was completely different from what I was used to. In my prime, I used to—I wasn't a gun, but I used to shoot about 160 a day. Um, but uh, now I just enjoy the fleece. I like that a lot. That's so so good. Uh, and just finally, I mean, you've obviously really embraced mohair, embraced the angora goats. It's a passion for you. What is it that you love about doing what you do the most? I think it's what any industry you choose to be in. You need to have a passion for it, and uh, we were in the wool industry for a number of years in WA, and uh, we were in the dairy industry before that. Uh, in the wool industry, we were in the top ten um, price-wise, and we often topped in Denmark, Western Australia. Uh, so it's, it's it's the passion you have for whatever you're doing, and we wanted a challenge in in retirement, so um, we chose goats. Best of luck with everything ahead, Don. Lovely chatting with you. Yeah, thank you. Same. That's Don Acklin from Henrietta Angora speaking with me at yesterday's Goat Fest. And make sure that you tune into the country out tomorrow. I'll take you on a tour of what was a very fun day in Tasmania's north. After the 1pm news, we'll head to the world today. And then Joel Reinberger will be on your airwaves or on the ABC Listen app from 130 Coming up next, we're going to take a visit to Bothwell. Conversations. This poem is written in the Australian dialect, the dialect of Australians, and that's why they're saying ruined for ruin. And a kid called Russell Patterson, and he had to read it in an Australian dialect. He got up and he went, Well, I'll be ruined, said Hanrahan, before the year is up. You stupid boy, what are you doing? And he said, I'm speaking in Australian Dalek. Dalek! Hear the latest conversations. Weekday mornings from 11 on ABC Radio. Or anytime on the ABC Listen app. Have you caught the second season of Muster Dogs, which is back on ABC TV? It follows five Australian Border Collies who have 12 months to go from pups to pros on a working farm. At Bothwell's seventh-generation farmer, Russ Fowler, has been busy training up dog Molly to eventually manage roughly 18,000 sheep. A very lucky Clancy Barland caught up with the pair in the Central Highlands. It's sort of like going to footy, uh, an AFL training session, uh, opposed to going to your, your local footy training session. It's just all those little things that you pick up that just quicken the process up in training a dog. I, I see Molly as more of a, a, um, a sort of two-year-old to three-year-old dog uh, in terms of her, her ability to the work she can, she can do. All she really needs to put the finishing touches on her is, um, yeah, just grow up, basically. I mean, she's only a, a teenager, so, you know, I've just got to give her time and allow her to do that. So, yeah, Molly is um, a, a border collie from uh, New South Wales up at Dubbo, um, is where, where she originates from. Uh, she's part of a 100-year-old bloodline and has done uh, really well and... Um, yeah, very happy with how it all went and turned out. Yeah. Tell me about the first time that you met her. What was that like? Uh, so it was pretty interesting. We're in the garden here now, um, and I had no 
no idea what I was getting or, you know, what what the dog would look like or anything. And, yeah, she's been a great addition. Why did you apply for muster dogs? So my son, Charlie, he, uh, he was obsessed with it the first season. Uh, yeah, watched it over and over. So I thought, um, yeah, the application came up on Facebook and I thought, oh, well, I'll give it a crack, see what happens, not expecting to actually get to where we are now. Family must have been pretty excited too, right? <laughs> oh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Charlie was over the moon and, um, yeah, no, it was, um, yeah, good experience because our daughter was only six weeks old at the time, so we've just been gone through yeah, the new addition process and then, yeah, to have this on was sort of a cherry on top sort of thing, yeah. Can you tell me a bit about what the experience has been like, how demanding it's been for you? Yeah, it's um, it's been quite different because originally I I train my dogs off my my other dogs, but that doesn't work under this technique. So, yeah, it's this is a more refined way of training a dog. It's sort of like a diet. You see how the the end result and it looks great and everything like that, and you get all amped up, but then. You know, not always you follow through on the process, whereas um, this process I didn't have the option of not following through. So it's been great for me in that sense because I've had to stick to it and um, I've learned a lot out of it. And how did Molly go fitting in with all the other dogs? My pack's pretty laid back, so um, when a new one comes in, as long as they're uh, laid back themselves, which I was lucky Molly is, uh, she slotted right in. Is there anything that you reckon you'd do differently next time with training a dog after what you've learnt? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty full-on process, really. Like, I had to make time to, to do it. So, yeah, I had to set aside time and make sure that we were getting to those stages in a timely fashion. So, probably going forward, I'd just allow a bit more time, do the basics over a longer period of time. Yeah, you sort of need to allow the dog to grow and not put too much on them because really in that first 12 months you're packing a lot of information into the dog. Um, so, yeah, you just need to allow that dog to grow. You're obviously a pretty busy person. You've got a pretty big operation. Where do you find the time to do this? Um, yes, it's uh, yeah, it makes it hard. But, yeah, it, it's sort of one of – it's very rewarding – sort of thing so um, I sort of put aside the time because I can see the benefit out of it further down the track. I think it's important that um, people understand that the dogs you really have to put the time into them and you need to do it at such a young age to get the basics into them. Oh, how nice. Russ Fowler from Bothwell speaking to Clancy Barlin. He and his Border Collie pup Molly are part of this season's Muster Dogs, which you can catch on ABC iView and ABC TV this Sunday night. A final message from Ross in the Huon on Devil Roadkill. You've said, every week I drove drive over 100 kilometres at night at about 60 kilometres an hour in the country. Devils are nearly impossible to see and unlike 
unlike wallabies and possums, the sudden flash of white is the only sign of them. Tourists generally don't travel late at night. Ross, thank you for your message there. My name is Evan Wallace. It's been so good having your company throughout the afternoon on the Tasmanian Country Hour. I think I can, uh, well, giddy up a few goats for tomorrow. But uh, until then, take care. It's news time.